Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the USC Washington School of Education. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. Two of us often fall on different sides of the big questions in education. But today, we're going to talk through some of the educational issues of the day in search for deeper understanding and sometimes common ground. So Pedro, just last month, President Biden announced a plan to cancel up to $10,000 of student debt for individual borrowers who earn less than $125,000, up to $20,000 for folks who qualified for Pell Grants. Today, we're going to talk about Biden's announcement or my preferred nomenclature scheme and uh, what we think about it. Uh, curious, first, gut level reaction for your part. So, you know, my first reaction was, it's not gonna do much. Um, but then, you know, I've been talking to people who are dealing with these loans and they all, everybody spoke and said, it's a help, um, a step in the right direction. So, so I have mixed feelings. I, I mean, I think the bigger problem is the cost of college. Mm-hmm. And that's something we've got to deal with. And this plan doesn't solve that. This is a very temporary measure to help the people with the loans now. What about the people next year and the year after that? So, yeah, like I said, I have mixed feelings. Yeah, so I definitely, I, you know, so my feelings aren't very mixed. <laughs> big, big concerns about this. One, I mean, I totally agree with you on the cost of college thing. And there, what's frustrating to me is this actually sends a signal that you might as well borrow money because it might be free. And, you know, you're right that 10,000 for folks who might owe substantial amounts isn't a huge amount to them, but the total price tag for this thing is half a trillion dollars to the American taxpayer. That's more than twice all of the COVID relief money together that was sent to K-12 education. This would be enough to double the size of the Pell Grant into the 2050s. And instead what we're doing is giving it willy-nilly to anybody who owes money you know, uh, a member of the Harvard Law faculty that very same day sent a note, you know, thanking the White House for bringing uh, so much relief to thousands of Harvard Law School graduates. I got to tell you, if you borrowed uh, lots of money to go to Harvard Law School or Stanford Law School or Wharton Business School, I have no earthly idea why taxpayers should be forgiving part of your uh, part of your loan. You should okay, be but borrowed money. You should repay that. I don't think too many of the Harvard or Wharton graduates are making under one hundred twenty-five thousand. Oh, sure, sure, they are in their in their first five years. You don't think Harvard Law when they go out and work in corporate firms, they're making way more than that. Maybe the few that are doing public defense work, but not many of them are. <laughs> so, and so my, my general stance is: look, a, a lending program is a handshake between the borrower and the taxpayer. And I mean, if if it's if people borrowed money and they're unemployed or they're having a rough time, or they didn't get their degree, that I understand. Um, and we obviously have income-based relief programs, income-based repayment. I could have understood some kind of targeted relief for individuals who are in particular circumstances. Using a provision of the post-9-11 HEROES Act uh, that was for military families to give half a trillion dollars in widespread relief to anybody who owes money, just, boy, boy, I, it just doesn't strike me as a responsible way to tackle the problem. Well, you know, again, I want to put it in perspective. We give all kinds of relief to homeowners. We give um, tax breaks to uh, business owners. So 
if you think about it, it as far as who benefits from government subsidies of various kinds, lots of people do. And, and, and there's not a lot of complaint about that when we have corporations that are writing off taxes and uh, some of the biggest corporations in the country not paying their share of taxes. At the same time, what, what most concerns me about this is it gives the appearance that we're solving the problem and we're not. The problem, you know, I work at one of the most expensive uh, universities in the country and um, the problem's not going away. And mm. that's the issue we've got to tackle. Um, which is why have states stopped subsidizing their public colleges? Because if the public colleges were cheaper, it might force some of the private colleges to uh, lower their tuitions. But, you know, I don't know about you, but when I went to college, I went to, to Brown, it was about $7,000 a year. Right? And I ended up with about $5,000 in, in debt at the end of four years, because I had Pell Grants, I had scholarships that covered it. I thought that was a lot of money. You know, right now, a cost of an education at Brown is, you know, close to $80,000 a year. And the, the rising cost has, you know, it's hard to say that you're getting something more or better than mm -hmm. what I got when I was a student. And I mean, frankly, it's hard to say exactly what you're getting. I mean, right, <laughs> we, know, we know that if you get admitted to these prestigious places, um, they graduate everybody and employers figure, well, you must bring the social capital. And, and so it's a, it's a pretty good wreck. So first off, let me say, I totally hear you on the idea that we subsidize a lot of activity. We subsidize, you know, I point well taken. We subsidize home ownership. Um, companies get tax breaks. But look, we already subsidize folks taking loans. I mean, that's part of the part of what frustrates me here about the conversation is you're not paying market interest rates. You're already paying direct lending. We moved direct lending during the Obama years because it was an even, even more subsidized loan for taxpayers and the previous sub, for students and the previous subsidized loans. We have public service loan forgiveness um, so that if you make on-time payments, uh, was for 10 years, President Biden's trying to unilaterally change it to eight years, that you uh, the rest of your loan is forgiven. So if you did go to law school and you wanna work at a nonprofit or you wanna work for Defender's Office, um, and you do that until you're 35, $100,000 alone to whatever, just get, you know, taxpayers pick it up. Um, we do have income-based repayment so that if you didn't complete your degree or if you fall on tough times or you can't find a job that provides for your family, there's, so I, I hear your point, but I feel like, gosh, we already have policies in law that provide this. And what, what this does is it unilaterally says, look, if you went to a cheaper school or you worked nights, yeah, tough. We're going to send, we're going to give, you know, the 10,000 bucks to whoever happens to own 10,000, owe 10,000. But that's it. And, and it seems to me it sends exactly the wrong message about college costs. Because look, I mean, for me, when you look at the trend line on why states are reducing support for higher ed, partly it's because huge shares of state budgets nowadays go to supporting Medicaid, uh, which constitutes about half the state budgets because of policy choices have been made. Um, and the next biggest chunk is K-12. And unless one thinks states are severely undertaxing their people, those dollars have got to come from somewhere. No, it's true. And so, so that's what I mean, that the bigger policy issues aren't being addressed here.
like you said, I mean, the number one reason why people will go into bankruptcy is healthcare expenses that they can't pay. Why do we have such high healthcare expenses? I mean, you can literally go to Mexico and get the same dental work or medical work done at a fraction of the cost um, or get the same uh, pharmaceutical products. Most countries don't have a problem with the cost of college, right? You, you know, you think about Canada. Uh, you, you rarely see Canadians coming to American schools because they have great colleges and they're all cheap, very affordable. Um, they're subsidized by the state. So, you know, we're doing something all wrong here. You know, I've been in higher ed all my life and um, I don't know. I just think the system is rigged and it's, it's not working. A lot of these private institutions really function like hedge funds. Um, you know, you know, you think about Harvard's endowment. I don't know what it's up to now. Fifty billion dollars. Fifty billion dollars. I when I was uh, a new professor there, I got a whole um, orientation about their um, their their fundraising strategy. And at one point, I asked, "When will you decide you have enough? That you've got enough in the endowment, you don't need to keep raising?" And they looked at me like I was crazy, because the answer is never. They'll never have enough. And so then the question is, what is all that money going toward, mm -hmm. right? If you're only spending the interest, what's the, those vast reserves, what are they being used for? So, you know, the colleges are not accountable. Um, you know, we would like to hope that they're doing good work of the research is going to benefit society. You know, the education of people benefits society. And I believe that's true to some degree, but the cost is um, can't be defended. And so that's why I don't know the answer to this, Rick. Maybe you yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, man. I but, wish. you know, you've got little kids and, and uh, you know, they're going to be in college one day. I hope you're saving. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, part of it, I mean, this endowment question is a really interesting one. Uh, like I said, I, I can't remember uh, which law school faculty member it was at Harvard who said, you know, thanks to President Biden's leadership for forgiving money to thousands of Harvard Law School alums. You know, Frank, I mean, it strikes me as unconscionable that Harvard is sitting on $50 billion, right? paying out at 4%, that's $2 billion a year. It, 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 it was already deeply problematic that it was still requiring students to pay tens of thousands or $70,000 a year to get a degree. The idea that taxpayers should give these students money so that Harvard can, can squat on its endowment seems just morally perverse. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems to me the one, one policy response here is for those deep-pocketed institutions, say institutions that have endowments of a certain size, a billion dollars a year, $500 a year, um, that if they want to continue to be eligible for federal funds, to participate in the student lending program, to be eligible for federal research funds, uh, they ought to have to work out a deal with the government, like General Motors did during its bailout, when they, they're going to repay taxpayers for the money mailed to their former students um, as a condition of continued eligibility. And that seems to me at least to draw a distinction between these extreme, extremely resource-rich institutions, asking them to clean up some of their own laundry um, and draw a distinction between them and community colleges or public institutions that don't have the same kinds of resources. I, I like that. And I also think they should pay local property tax, um, which they don't pay. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, but I was checking, you know, the average loan, 
the average amount of debt owed by a college graduate. Now, that's not the ones who didn't graduate who have debt. The average is 28,000. So 10,000 represents, you know, a significant amount, which means that many of those people will now be able to buy homes. So if you think about it, it will be a real benefit to a significant number of people who've been putting off, you know, purchasing a home or other, you know, major expenditures because of their student loans. So, you know, I'm not one of them. I don't benefit. Um, but I, I have to say that there will be many people who benefit. The other issue, though, is we have a lack of financial literacy in this country among many people uh, who are taking out way too much loans. Uh, with, I don't know how they ever... I, I spoke to a, a woman the other day. She already has three degrees. She's in our doctoral program. And she told me she has $300,000 in loans. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why would you take a... You'll mm -hmm. never pay this back. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what she's thinking. And I mean, so, and the part of the problem is that, college, you know, it was funny... Um, Public service loan forgiveness was this program introduced during the Obama years for the idea is that if you work for a nonprofit or for the government, um, and again, you make your on-time payments for 10 years, your whole balance is forgiven. One of the problems is expensive graduate schools figured out how to game the system. Georgetown Law had a video online for years where they were walking you know, potential students through it saying, look, here's the deal. Borrow, don't pay us, don't, don't spend any money out of pocket. Borrow as much as you can. You come here and then you go work for Greenpeace or, you know, Defender's Office. And you do that for 10 years and you will pay nothing for your Georgetown Law degree. Don't worry about it. The taxpayers have got them. And in fact, the sweetener was they said, we will make your payments along the way for you. And so part of it is somebody along the way should have had an incentive to say to this woman, hey, this is not going to work out well for you. This is, this is rapacious behavior on the part of the higher ed. We need to protect you, just like we would protect you from a payday lender. We would protect you from like, um, you know, some scammy mortgage provider. And um, I think that, I mean, I think part of the problem is we have been hesitant to look at higher ed the same way we look at some of these other sectors. No, I, I think that's true. But I think we're going to have to because uh, the cost of colleges keeps going up. And it's really, I think, resulting in many, a growing number of people saying it's not worth it. And um, even though the evidence is clear, it is. That is, you know, the, the, the evidence shows that if you get a college degree, you're much, your ability to earn it is enhanced when you compare it to people without a degree. Um, so college still makes a difference, but the cost of college can't just be written off. I, I do want to again point out historically, when veterans were returning from World War II, we were committed to subsidizing their education. It created America's middle class, right, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, same thing with, um, you know, housing loans. So it, you know, th there are a lot of people who benefited who are now saying, Screw these people who took out these loans. Well, they didn't have to deal with this, right? Because the cost of an education was so much lower for them when they were entering school. So I, I, I think, but I don't think this is the solution. Um, I think this is at best, you know, it's clearly political, um, but, it, but it's also not going to fix the larger problem of these rising costs.
So when you think about, you know, what's driving the rising cost, you know, I, you, you made the point that for you, it's partly uh, reduced state subsidies. You know, I, I, I think if, I, don't, I don't think that's a big part. But I think that's, that's the state a, colleges, not the private right. university. I was going to say, and that's not a factor, at, you know, we don't have to talk about USC. It's not a factor at UCLA. Right. At Stanford. Or, what, what do you think is driving a massive tuition inflation? You know, the, the cost of operations, including the salaries of professors, you know, like me, right? And um, I, I heard a friend of mine is an economist. He used a term to describe, you know, why do uh, violinists in the symphony get paid so well? Um, it's because they do something unique. And if you want a symphony, you got to get the best violinist. And so they can demand more. And, and you know, so there are certain, you know, the certain academic fields where they've been able to demand very high salaries, uh, particularly in economics and business and, and law and medicine. And uh, that's, that's one of the factors driving up costs. But then on the, at the same time, parents want their kids in nice dorms. You know, uh, they want them to have the luxuries uh, of uh, middle-class life while they're in college. And so, you know, they expect that they pay high tuition they're going to have facilities that, you know, meet their needs or meet their desires. So I think there's so, there are many factors contributing to these rising costs. Yeah, right. And there's the old Baumol's disease thing that, right, there that, you go. That, that, that labor intensive, professional intensive industries get more expensive. But, but you know, but I got to wonder, I mean, like, honestly, I have no confidence having, you know, you and I have taught at a lot of different fancy universities and maybe a bit of a I have no confidence that the people teaching ed policy uh, or intro econ or intro chemistry at a fancy Ivy League institution, many of whom are grad students teaching, say, two thirds of the instruction a week, are actually any better than the people teaching this at places that cost a lot less. You're right. I mean, the, the big scam is that the higher you're paid, the less you teach. <laughs> and you're not paid for your teaching. You're paid because you can bring in grants and because and yeah, you... Hopefully because you're doing research and you're writing that's adding to the prestige of the university. But the, how do students benefit from having that well-paid scholar around? I mean, I, you know, part of, me, part of me is like, look, you know, when, when the government winds up being asked to step in and bail out the sector, uh, we say, well, wait a minute, let's make sure that, like you said, like, like the crazy behavior doesn't continue. So like you saw this with savings and loans once upon a time. You've seen it with Chrysler and General Motors. It seems to me that like, look, we ought to say, tell you what, if you want to be eligible for the feds to help underwrite student uh, tuition, you've got you know, you, to keep tuition under control. We're not going to just keep writing checks so that 19-year-olds can borrow a ton of money without realizing what they're getting into. Yeah. And then will they either wind up saying, my gosh, I owe $300,000, or, uh, or they wind up saying, well, let me off the hook. I, I never meant, I, I got suckered into borrowing the money. Yeah, now it's, it's, you know, so there's a lot of people who share the blame, not just the institutions, but the individuals sometimes making poor decisions. And, um, I, you know, that's got to be weighed in. But again, you know, when I was a, a, a young college student, I didn't understand any of this stuff. And uh -huh. I took on loans um, to go to college uh, because I had to. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to afford it. 
But are we teaching the wrong lesson? I mean, I'm sure you would have liked your 5,000 forgiven. I mean, are we teaching folks the wrong lesson that if you complain hard enough, uh, the president will give you a half trillion dollar in free money? And if, there, if there's a lot of blame to go around, the institutions and the policy system and the borrowers, I mean, what, what, what's, what, what lesson are we teaching borrowers here? No, it's true. I mean, but, but again, if you could make the comparisons to healthcare, where, where people often end up with lots and lots of debt. As you know, I, I, I was sick a year ago. And when I saw the cost of some of the procedures for a MRI, for example, it's, it's outrageous. And they will call for those, um, you know, whatever. And um, it, it just doesn't make the cost. <laughs> Who's paying that? You know, the health insurance company. So, and, and it, it just, it just out of hand. And I, I don't know what we do to contain either the cost of higher ed or of healthcare, but that's a big part of what's distorted in this whole economy. And uh, we need to figure it out because we need healthcare, we need education. Uh, our society does benefit from having educated people, but we're not figuring out how to do it very efficiently. I think, you know, we've got a lot more common ground on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey pal, uh, good to see you. And uh, why don't, uh, let me, if you have one more last word, I'll give it to you. You know, it, I, I've been watching Arizona State University. I, I want to just encourage you to take a look at Michael Crow, the president there, and what they're doing. They are now the largest university in the country. They have 80,000 students in person down in Phoenix, and then another 70,000 online. 10,000 of his students are working at Starbucks, and Starbucks pays their tuition. Their strategy is not to find success by who they exclude, but by who they include. I think Crow is right. I hope that he's able to do more and show disrupt this whole racket that we call higher ed. What, what, what a upbeat note to close a, uh, for, at least for me, a frustrating conversation, man. Hey, good to see you, Pedro. We'll talk soon. Good to see you, Rick. The two of us have much more to say, but uh, we're out of time. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground. Conversations, questions at K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. And thanks to our producer, Alicia Nava. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like us to discuss by sending an email to podcasts at AEI.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time.